Hello, Casey. Hey, Jamel. So something that's been on my mind lately is Mm -hmm. about the importance of internships, right? The importance of getting on-the-job experience with an area of study, an area of focus um, that can happen outside the classroom. The importance of learning outside the classroom. What do you think about that? Well, I mean, you know, the more I'm a a teacher, actually, and the more I I spend time with, you know, folks like you um, and other students is like, wow, I really would have done college differently if I if I could. It's like, did I ever have an internship? Did I ever raise my hand in class? Um, Did I use the resources available to me? Um, And no. And so I think the more we can. encourage students to really take advantage of those resources, um, you know, the more that they can get value out of their education and, and build collective power, right? Yeah. And we talk a lot about student activism on this podcast. Yes, we do. And, you know, a huge way of getting into activism is getting into politics. Mm-hmm. I recall, I believe it was after my first year, I had an internship in the mayor's office, in my local's mayor's office. I did not know that. I did for the summer. Of course you did. I did an unpaid Hmm. internship. Um, I did not want to be idle. I wanted to do something, get my hands wet. Always been interested in politics. Always been interested in local government. Because that is where decisions happen for your community. So I took an unpaid internship in my local mayor office. I learned a lot about how my mayor office operates. Uh, I was writing pop proclamations proclamations they have me doing yeah interesting yeah and and you know i think about too i mean there's local government like mayor's office um and then you know all different levels of government right and i grew up 20 minutes from congress right outside of dc um and to me you know that felt kind of local um that like congress felt close living in the Washington DC area. And then when I moved to New Mexico and lived in Wisconsin, and I heard how people talked about Washington as like this like distant place where people did horrible things or they got nothing done. And they just had these complaints, like they didn't have any sort of sense of connection to their federal government. Um, That was a really like an eye opener for me. And, you know, I'm curious for you as someone born in Connecticut, born and raised in Connecticut, does does Washington DC does does like the federal government seem close to you? Does it seem far? Is it approachable? Well, I've been to DC once. I went when I was looking at colleges for the first time. Interesting. Yes. I was looking at universities in DC. And one, I, I thought the monuments were gorgeous. It felt like a very important space. <laughs> I would say the federal government does feel approachable, but to me specifically, because I've never been scared to talk to a representative. And I sure. find that over the years, I've been in many spaces, like the legislation breakfast we have on campus, you know, where people come and they talk to us, we talk to them. So I feel like that's approachable for me, but I can see how for ordinary citizens that don't find themselves in political spaces, how that can be unapproachable. And also not necessarily knowing the differences between levels of government and where things happened. So when I interned at the mayor's office, I seen a lot of calls and a lot of complaints. And it was always complaints that didn't deal with us directly. 
Like that wasn't our job to fix. We had no power to fix that. We had interesting over certain areas. It was just not our level of government. And so I think for a lot of people, ordinary citizens, you know, sometimes the problem may be not knowing which level to bring a concern to. You know, for this conversation today, we're so excited to bring back a a member of our podcast team who has been in this distant land um, of Washington, D.C., Andrina Barajas-Novoa, who was just an intern with the Congressional uh, Hispanic Caucus Institute. And as a, I guess this was the first semester of your second year, Andrina, right, that you spent living in Washington, D.C., and working in Congressman Seth Moulton's office. So welcome to the show. We cannot wait um, to hear about your experiences. Thank you so much for the warm welcome. And I'm really excited to be back at Southern, working towards Southern social justice initiatives, and then also bringing with me the experience from being on the Hill. Mm. And I, I really, both of you talking to you, I'm like, with the confidence it takes to do the kinds of things that both of you do, um, you know, the more we can share, you know, your stories and, and get that kind of, uh, for lack of a better word, vibe out there to more people, empower folks, I mean, the better. So like, Andrina, I'm, what had you apply for that internship in the first place? Um, because seriously, as a, you would have applied while you were in your first year of college, to be like, oh, yeah, I'll go live in Washington, D.C. I'll be an intern in Congress. I mean, that really takes um, a certain kind of presence and confidence that I, for one, admire. Well, <laughs> thank you so much. Um, I guess what really propelled me to want to apply to this internship is specifically with or through the Congressional Hispanic Caucus Institute was really back in high school, my interest in wanting to be in government and interest in government work. I realized that I wanted to continue going to college because I went to vocational high school. It wasn't really expected of me to do that. But personally, I saw myself working more with people rather than machines. And I went to a technical school for HVAC and I quickly realized that was not for me. (laughs) But yeah, so it was really like the summer of my the summer of going into college, so before the start of my first semester, that I was just Googling opportunities to intern in Congress, specifically opportunities that were fully funded and paid where I didn't really have to rent an apartment for three or four months. So this was like a, a full ride pretty much to intern in Congress. They also provided me with a stipend and transportation to and from D.C. So this is really... It's a great program for low-income students and students of color, but because it's the CHCI, they primarily help out Hispanic and Latino students. So that's how I was able to apply. And yeah, I would say it was because of my interest in government, and I found out about this opportunity by a Google search (laughs) before the start of my first year at Southern. So from, from HVAC technical school, before even going to college... You know, how can I get to Congress and how can I have somebody else pay for that? Yeah, yeah and to even and, and to go up, <laughs> to go into that, too, I remember distinctively my 
first year, like being a freshman in high school, because it was a vocational high school, our expectation isn't to go to college really, uh, unless you're in one of the other trades, which mine didn't really require me to go to college because I'm an HVAC. I can go work in HVAC right now if I wanted to, but other career paths did. But I remember one of the teachers telling us that if we wanted to go to law school, that the school wouldn't be able to give you that opportunity. Like you wouldn't be able to do this while going to this school. And I just remember thinking that you're wrong because (laughs) I'm going to choose what I want to do with my life. And if I want to go to law school or do something else with this career path, then I'm going to do it. And I think the relation that I have with my high school and the work that I'm aiming to do now is that I want to do something labor focused and being able to do this past internship in Congress proved to me that I can do that despite not having a background from, you know, coming from a private high school or a really good high school or something like that, you know, I was still able to do it. Hmm. Well, so would you walk us through a, a typical day? So did, I mean, like, were you living with roommates? How close were you to Congress? Like, you know, what time are you getting in? I assume that you have to like DC and obviously Congress are like super dressy places. I don't have the wardrobe to intern at Congress right now myself. Um, so yeah, can you give us like a, a picture of, of what your daily life was like? Yes. Yeah, so, <laughs> uh, the CHCI, like they gave us housing in Silver Springs, Maryland, which is like a 40 minute commute, I would say, to the Capitol. And a typical day for me was, or more like even a typical week, I would say. On Mondays, I would do CHCI programming. And then Tuesday to Friday, I would go into the office. And for Mondays, I could dress business casual because it was CHCI programming. And then when it came to working in the office, it was mainly business professional, which is I, I'm not used to wearing suits every day, but I had to get used to it really quickly. <laughs> and I would say a lot of the people tend to dress very well with their name brand um, suits and everything, their name brand shoes, the leather backpack. But I wasn't like that. I, I like where I come from. I thrift my clothes. My suits were all thrifted. They were either thrifted or my mom's clothes. So I kind of embraced that when I was in Congress. I, I didn't really want to conform to that overdressy type. And I know a lot of people do to just try to fit in. But yeah, that was... <laughs> the dress code and then a typical day i started my day off with news clips which is basically just looking at different headlines from different newspapers and then putting that all in a document sending it off to the congressman and then after that it was mainly answering constituent emails uh, phone calls from constituents and then also attending briefings that a staffer wanted us to attend to. And some of the briefings that I attended were on immigration, Afghanistan, education, healthcare. So those are areas of my interest. And I also got to learn a lot about um, veteran affairs as well as infrastructure, which are two things that I'm not 100% focused on here in Connecticut. So it was a learning experience there. And then another big thing that was also a part of my daily schedule and even sometimes weekly schedule was meeting with different staffers and networking on the Hill. They call them coffees (laughs) over on the Hill. 
That's an official term. Yeah. Yeah. It's an official term. My supervisor and then the, our, our supervisors for the CHCI told us all about the different terms that they use on, on the Hill. And like, I would usually just refer to it as Congress, but it kind of just stuck to me to just refer to it as the Hill <laughs> because right, that's right, what right. everyone uses. I like how you talked about making your professional dress your own. That's always something I've believed is professionalism is something you define it to be. And it's pretty radical to decide to do that in a space that may not be so approachable. So I definitely commend you for that. Now, you know, working with you over these last couple of semesters, I know you're big into activism. You always got something to say. How did that translate into this new role, into this new space? I feel like the work that I do on campus related, well, the activism work that I do both on campus and in the state of Connecticut didn't transfer enough to this role. And I think leading up to this internship, I had a lot of hope that somehow myself, my one person, my one being was going to be able to change the perspective of the congressman or even just impact policy in some small, small way. But unfortunately, I wasn't able to do that. And I think it kind of let me down. And that was more so towards the start. And then afterwards, I kind of just realized that on, well, in Congress, activism doesn't really have a space. And when it comes to representation, I think there should be more activists that become Congress people, more organizers that hold these roles, and then just a whole transfer of like power and giving that power to the people. Because what I realized when I was there is that a lot of these laws that are being made are from people who are just learning about them through, I don't know, <laughs> whether it was attending college or whatever, and then not enough people who actually lived these things. So like the policies that they make don't have a sense of urgency behind them because the people making the policies never had to go through the things that they're writing about, you know? So like it reminded me a lot about representation and the need to have more of that in Congress, both the staffers and the elected members. Mm. So there seems to be a gap in representation of elective officials, but also the way we interact with our general public with the folks whose lives are being challenged or somehow harmed possibly and not feeling that urgency to react and to help and to be one with our larger community is what I'm hearing. Yeah. Ain't that I'm curious guy? what, um, you know, you said that one thing that you were doing was responding to constituent letters or emails and, and phone calls, what are the things that were coming up in, in folks' concerns? Racism. <laughs> like, there wasn't yeah. one positive call. I would say the calls that I would get from constituents were typically racist calls. I never oh. really had too many positive calls, but when I did, mm. it made my day completely. And then when it was emails, emails were typically just constituents asking us for questions on different bills and then some constituents asking us to do more in terms of infrastructure related work um racial justice and 
those typical those were the typical emails but when it comes to phone calls i feel like i'm traumatized because uh, there were too many racist phone calls that i just was not prepared for in this role interesting yeah I, well when you said racism at first i was like oh people are calling in to demand change and you know that we do something about racism you're saying people are calling in and being racist on the phone yeah and you and- have to respond to that I do. It was really hard because most of the people that would call made me call about immigration, which oh, sure. I, yeah, <laughs> they would mainly call about immigration. And at first it didn't affect me too much, but then as it just continued, it started affecting me a lot more because my parents are immigrants. The work that I do in Connecticut relates to immigration and to just constantly hear that there's people that just don't want to welcome individuals and just all these different racist policies that are in our immigration system and people just not realizing it and being okay with those policies really bothered me. But yeah, they would mainly call about immigration. And I remember there was this one caller that that tried to say that slavery wasn't as bad as history makes it out to be. And yeah, so a lot of weird phone calls that I don't typically or not phone calls but just a lot of weird topics and talking points that I never really interacted with before and didn't have to deal with when I was on campus Hmm. I I could see that especially it happening over a long period of time the toll that would take on a person of color absolutely so if you're thinking about you know, other people of color entering that space, right? Entering these similar roles and we'll be having to deal with phone calls and constituents that are coming from a space of racism, coming from a space of white supremacy, coming from a space of hatred. How do you recommend they handle that or navigate that space? Oof. That's yeah, that's a, great, that's a great question, Jamil. It really is. I was very, I made sure that I communicated my feelings towards my supervisor, but where I found the most help was with the other members of my cohort who also had to deal with these calls. So if there's any student listening to this podcast and is interested in interning on the Hill sometime, I would say if you're not in, well, if you're not doing it through a separate program where you get to meet people from your own cohort. So if it doesn't follow a cohort model, try to find another person of color that you can confide in on the Hill who will be able to relate to your experiences. Because I think what really helped me was being able to talk to my friends about this and them also understanding because they also have these challenges in in their space. Yeah. And, you know, that is also true for anyone who works at any level of government, like engaging with the public. So I mean, city council all the way to the top. And I really, I mean, I I almost can't even imagine what folks, elected officials, not to mention all of their staffs, but like the staff, who, you know, you're the ones who are like sort of the front line of receiving the public. Um, but man, the, the, the pushback, the racism, the anger, you know, in addition to the positive things, I'm sure, you know, there's some stuff, but like elected officials deal with a lot. 
Yeah. I would say too. I mean, I wouldn't really say that they deal with a lot of stuff because <laughs> there's one thing I realized like from interning on the Hill was that the members and just like, well, I guess this is true for Congress. They just don't really do a lot of the work that you think that they're doing. I don't know how to explain that, but I'll try to. Like their floor speeches aren't written by themselves. They're written by for their sure. staff members. And pretty much they have people to tell them what to do, where to go, what to say. So it's really a group effort. And when it comes to speaking to constituents, interns are constantly the ones that are like, Mm. and if it's not the intern, then it's the staff assistant. Like it's usually because like the hierarchy on the Hill is like pretty weird. Like it's usually the staff assistants and people on a, a lower role, I guess I would say, are the ones who are having to answer those tough calls. But the member, I wish that there was a member that actually would answer the phone call so they know the racist calls that we have to answer to. Right. I, it, that reminds me of my internship because it was very similar where it's like the team. I was so surprised by that. How much of the actual work is accomplished by the team versus by your elected official? the speeches they write, where to stand, what calls, what meetings they were going to go to, what they were going to say at the meeting, how to frame it, how to photograph them. Like all of it is really coming from interns <laughs> and many of us unpaid. Mm. Yeah, it's it, also, I mean, I remember learning like all of the famous speeches that you might read, you know, from presidents or whomever, Almost none of them. I mean, Obama famously, like he also had a speechwriters, but like those speeches that the president is known for, the speechwriter is not known for those speeches, you know? And it really is like, of course, one person can't do all the things that are happening from a collective of people. And they're just like managing the office. But, you know, it's not unlike owning a business and you have a whole bunch of employees who do a lot of the work and then you're the one who's sort of the face of that collective effort. Well, one thing I wonder, you know, that's interesting about the phone call too, because I mean, just so many people have not had jobs where they have to field any phone calls. Um, but what, what do you think is the best way based on your experience? Like if you really want to get a message across to a congressperson, and this doesn't apply to anyone who has a racist message, <laughs> disregard. Um, but if you want to get through, I've heard that calling is better than emailing. But what is, you know, from your inside perspective, what would you say is the best way to really um, connect? That's a good question. Um, I guess it depends on how much you're trying to get across, because if it's a lengthy or not a lengthy, if it's a big issue that requires something more in depth, and then I would say a written message, so therefore emailing your representative or senator. But when it comes to just getting a direct message across, so just saying, um, maybe saying, I want you to abolish ICE. So something like a simple direct message, I would say, that would be good for a phone call. And something that I learned, big pointer to people who do phone banks, was just to make sure that you're calling in, leaving your name, 
uh, email and phone number because that's how we were able to log the calls. And there were a few people, the, the calls that weren't racist and the calls that actually well called for positive change, I would say, um, they they didn't do that. They would sometimes oh, no. just hang I was able to ask them and I was just like, dang, I'm not able to let the congressman know and like notify like the staffers about an issue, you know? And I thought that was pretty upsetting, but I think that's something that people don't really take into consideration when they're calling in. And then especially if you call in after hours and you want to leave a voicemail, leave your your name, email, and phone number. And then if you feel comfortable, your address or maybe a zip code so that it could be logged because that's what a lot of people didn't do. And I guess it's also the benefit of an email because you're able to just send the message more directly, something more specific and, you know, written out is is a good way to communicate too. But yeah, I guess I, I would say phone calls if you want a, a more direct message. Now, has your viewpoint changed of how you view Congress, how you view elected officials, how you view our democracy in this country? How has that shifted for you? How has that stayed the same? Hmm. It changed a lot. (laughs) Where do I start? (laughs) So a lot of the work that I do here at Connecticut is activism related work. So social justice work on campus, DEI work on campus, and then immigration work in Connecticut through Connecticut Students for a Dream. And so when I was in this position, I realized that a lot of that work sometimes isn't appreciated in that high level of Congress. Um, So in terms of it changing my perspective, because like Representative Seth Moulton, he was big on the issue of getting people out of Afghanistan. So when it came to the uh, Afghan refugee inquiries and SIV applications. He was one of the few offices that were that was doing that. So it changed my perspective. Well, being exposed to that firsthand changed my perspective on our immigration system and how it needs to be improved to better serve refugees and then also other immigrant populations. Um, but when it came to the Afghanistan withdrawal and us no longer having people in Afghanistan, no military personnel to really get people out, that's when I started realizing that if I wasn't in this position as an intern attending these Afghanistan briefings, then I wouldn't understand why the government isn't doing enough to help these people get out. And I guess if I was if I wasn't in this position, I'd probably be making these phone calls and then asking our representatives to do more because there's more people that need help and more people that need to get out. But I just had to learn that the that there's just that help wasn't there. I don't know how to explain it, but it just wasn't there. And that was something tough to have to handle because I definitely would have been on the end of wanting our government to do more and then realizing that they're just, we don't have the right military personnel to actually get people out. And then the whole system of getting people out was just so complicated. 
it just can't be done. So that was really stressful having to be on that end and receiving these phone calls and telling people that I'm sorry, but we can't do anything to get your relative out or your friend out. There's just like, we just can't do anything. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know if that was like too much of a lengthy answer, but it definitely changed my perspective on our immigration system. And it honestly made me feel hopeless in my position because there wasn't enough that I can do to provide them a sense of safety and be able to tell them that we're going to be able to help you, except that wasn't true. Hmm. That's a lot to unpack there. A sense of powerless, you know, not having the power to do what you believe is right. Even when you don't have the resources, I could really see how that could happen. You know, looking on the other side, you know, as a citizen, you think it's so simple, right? Like we think it's always an issue of people not wanting to help, right? People not wanting to get involved, our elected officials not wanting to do X, Y, and Z. But we're never really thinking about what it would take to actually accomplish that, um, how complicated things that we talk about being simple may actually be. And that's, that's the problem true. if you're working to solve these issues, you tend to see how complex and how hard these systems are to navigate or how unrealistic it is to do. Right. I've felt the same thing. You know, any institution I've been a part of, particularly universities, like the more that I have experienced, um, like sort of like the, the higher up I see and engage with an institution, I, I feel that hopelessness because you see how sort of um, stuck in certain structures um, we are and, and how much po- truly how much political and social will needs to happen to shift um, public opinion enough um, or to, to make things happen enough to, to change those structures. And it takes a lot. It takes a lot. And it can feel it's, it's weird. Like the higher up you get, the more sometimes you have a bird's eye view. And sometimes that's hopeful. But a lot of times it's like, ooh, wow, there's a lot that I didn't know back when I, you know, didn't have that perspective. Yeah, like Jamil put it, it made me feel very powerless. And when I was doing, well, I'm still going to continue doing this work, social justice work in the I work on campus, of course, but I didn't really feel that sense of powerlessness here on campus and in Connecticut when I would do my immigration work. I started feeling that more so in Congress because there's not enough elected officials who want to fix these systems, challenge them. And I felt powerless because as an intern, my voice isn't really heard. My opinion isn't really asked for. So how much of an impact can I really have? Mm. But do you feel like what you learned while being there is going to inform your your activism either now or in the future? I, I sort of feel like you went on this, um, you know, you spent these months sort of gathering all this information, learning so much, and then bringing that back to be able to have an impact in in various ways in your career as an activist and a human being. That's an optimistic way to put it. What do you think? I guess how it would impact my work? I don't really know. Because that's still something I'm trying to answer myself. But... I would say something that I learned from a mentor, uh, 
that I that I got through the CHCI, he told me to not over intellectualize things. So that's something I'm going to take into consideration when I resume the work I do here and the work I do as an activist, both on campus and in Connecticut. Um, so not over intellectualizing issues and yeah, that's mainly one of my key takeaways. Something I think about often, and not even just in politics, but just activism in general, I see when folks step into activism for the first time, or even when they've been there for a little while, they tend to hit a wall of frustration of like, oh my God, I, why won't this work? Why won't this, why can't I fix this thing? But it's not just this small thing they're talking about. It's like, why can't I solve systematic racism by myself overnight? You know, why can't I fix a 400-year-long issue overnight by myself um, when it's just unrealistic and impossible to expect of yourself? And so what I try to always tell people is, even if you're something as small as an intern or even large with a large platform, you do what is realistic um, and you try to lean more into collective action. And I think that's more soothing is trying to think about doing things as a collective versus as I have this weight on my shoulder that I have to solve all the issues of inequities overnight by myself. And not being able to accomplish that um, makes me somehow a failure or makes me lose hope in our society and our systems. Um, it makes you want to stop the work altogether. But I do think, um, let's kind of switch it up, you know? There's a lot of sad stuff, a lot of maybe not nice stuff. How positive stuff? Any good stuff happened? Any really nice, happy moments? Any <laughs> juicy happy? stories? Right, is there happiness in Congress? Are we smiling in Congress? Is anybody happy down there? No. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, no. no. Oh, wow. Oh, we're doomed, everybody. Like, we're doomed. Yeah, a lot of the staffers just seem so depressed all the time. They're Overworked. stressed, a stressed bunch of people. Yeah, 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 a lot of stress. And then not paid enough for the work that they do. That's some tea because. <laughs> and also just learning the the insider scoop on a few members who may look good on the outside in terms of their policies, but are they a good boss? Probably not. <laughs> so there's, I learned about a lot of different office tea. Um, but in terms of positive things that happened to me in DC, I would say a lot of the positives happened outside of the office because a lot of the work that I was exposed to was very stressful and sad because I felt like I couldn't do enough to help um, refugees and impact immigration. So a lot of the fun stuff happened outside of work. And something that I really got out of this internship experience was feeling more seen and feeling more com confident and also like comfortable in these spaces and learning that I belong here just as much as anyone else does and really wanting to reclaim the space that is here for me and wanting to have a seat at the table and not only wanting it but demanding it is something that I really learned in DC so I'm ready to fuck shit up <laughs> um, and something very beautiful I would say that I was exposed to while in DC is my Mexican culture, which 
I honestly didn't really expect that. But in D.C., there's so many different museums, so many different cultural institutes. And because I interned through the Congressional Hispanic Caucus Institute, I got to be informed about a lot of these different cultural places. I got to meet a lot of different Hispanic and Latinx leaders, which was very beautiful. And I also got to attend like my first Dia de los Muertos event, which I'd never attended before in my life, <laughs> despite being Mexican. So I felt a lot more connected to my culture being in DC than when I'm here in Connecticut. Hmm. Yeah, there. I mean, and there are huge Latino populations from all over Central South America. And yes, I know exactly what you're talking about, the cultural institutes, the art. Um, and so that is fantastic and taking ownership of spaces. So there, you may be surrounded by miserable staffers, um, but I'll tell you what, like that takeaway for you of, of demanding uh, a seat at the table or a a space in the hall, whatever it is, um, and and feeling entitled to that and comfortable having walked there um, is also just a great testament to that internship program, too, as a way to build collective power and foster young leaders. That's what I'm talking about. I'm curious, what was the experience like being in community with a Latinos? Because I know often, especially, you know, going to a PWI, some different parts of our state not having large populations of minorities. Being in a space that is full of folks from your own community that are leaders and doing things very similar to you must have been amazing. How was that like? It was a beautiful experience just because I feel like when I was younger and especially when I was in high school, I didn't appreciate my Mexican heritage enough and I kind of didn't want to be associated with the Latinx community. I can't really explain why that was, why that came to be, but I didn't want to embrace my Latinx side, my Mexican side, and I kind of just wanted to hide it. Yes, I'm a person of color, but (laughs) leave it at that, you know, but being in a space where everyone is Latinx, Hispanic, however, um, you know, they choose to identify like that was very nice because we all have different experiences um some of my friends that I made from California had different experiences and a lot more exposure to the Hispanic and Latinx culture whereas I feel like I didn't have that growing up so being able to share that with them and just share this community space where we all want some sort of like reach some sort of liberation for our community was really nice. And I just really want that space again. (laughs) You know, I think a lot of people can relate to that feeling. Um, And then the regaining and the rejoining of your culture. I think a lot of people are going through right now. A lot of people are reflecting on that. Um, What's a message you can give to a Latino, a Hispanic student listening to this someone that may be like you, that may be thinking about getting involved like this and maybe just hasn't jumped into it? Mm. So something that my mom always told me was, echale ganas. (laughs) That is, um, I guess, one of my messages to a Hispanic or Latinx student listening to this, but then also 
not being afraid of your heritage and where you come from and just looking more into yourself, look deep into who you are and learn how you can embrace your culture, embrace your your heritage and use that in the work that you're doing and learn how to apply this to different areas that you're interested in. Boom. Ain't that just nice? Oh. Well, Andrina, thank you so much for talking with us today. We we have missed you on the podcast team and also have just been so proud of you um, out there in Congress. And I know, you know, the... I feel like your experience, even, you know, your learning and your takeaway from that, I feel like you'll still be reflecting on that, honestly, 20 or 30 years from now, that that will be um, one of many foundational moments for you. So thank you for sharing a little bit behind the curtain yes. um, of that experience and, and appreciate that that you learned some, some more gossip that's not necessarily worthy for the air <laughs> because, <laughs> you know. That's the wise thing to do. But thank you for, for being here with us and for sharing that experience and, and inspiring others. Yes. One day I have the dream of volunteering in your campaign when you're running for Congress. Ooh, That's my I'd dream. be out there. You know, I'm going to go to like spe- I'm gonna, speeches. I'm going to have a microphone. I'm going to be, you know, out there campaigning. So hopefully that's the dream. Oh, I would like to end on a positive note, though. This is something sure. that I <laughs> I didn't say in my message to Hispanic or Latinx students. So one of the big things, the major things that I learned while interning in Congress was how to define success. And that's something that I'm still reflecting on because my definition of success is different than someone else's definition of success. And when it came to me extending my internship and staying there for an extra month, I realized that success for me was just waking up and going to work. And that was success. Just being alive was success. Breathing was success. And not putting too much pressure on myself. And so I just want to end on a James Baldwin quote that one of the CHCI supervisors shared with us at the end of our internship. And so the quote is, I was not born to be what someone said I was. I was not born to be defined by someone else, but by myself and myself only. Beautiful. Yeah. We're going to leave it right Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Thank you, Andrina. Yes. Thank you. Thank you all for listening to that episode. If you liked that and want to hear more, please like, subscribe, and even leave a review or share with your friends and follow us on social media. We want to hear from you. Yes.